The Y Curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. Free speech, one of the fundamental rights, right? And the rise of social media means that more views on more topics can be expressed to a bigger audience than ever before. So hurrah for liberty. For the first time in history, we can all say whatever we like and the world can listen. Except, as we all know, if free speech is a weapon, it can harm as well as liberate, amplifying racism, misogyny, homophobia and hate. And the famous algorithm, the mechanism that pushes the bad stuff to the top, distorts the conversation as badly as the worst censorship or propaganda. So now we have a free speech absolutist heading Twitter, just as the UK Parliament's watered down a bill on online safety that would have banned harmful but legal content. So just how much online free speech do we need and want? That's this week. The why curve. So this is an so this is a meaty one because yeah. I don't think anybody actually knows the answer to this apart from the fact that this is probably one of the biggest issues that society faces today. It, it is. I mean, we always used to say, yes, free speech, except you can't yell fire in a cinema, crowded cinema. I mean, you know, the, there are always limits to free speech. The problem is the free speech is so available to everybody now, which it never has been before in yeah, the same and way. And people are able to hide behind anonymity as yeah. well, which is uh, which means you can say stuff that you would never say in polite society. And I th- the sad thing is it is the biggest disappointment of the internet isn't it because when the internet was starting up we were all thinking this is fantastic an opportunity to find information at your fingertips to discuss ideas maybe you know for the betterment of society with other people across the planet uh you know that that was an ideal that it, it, yes. we, has it has really fallen very well, short of has, the mark you know as many people used to say it's the same as the invention of printing back in the in the 14th 15th centuries suddenly everybody could access things that have been available to the only to the few beforehand Mm. and everybody said that was terrible and it was going to lead to social revolution and it did yeah but is it the same thing because now we are in a position where this is this is the kind of uh, arrangement that can bring down governments that can bring down governments in a good way in some places it can encourage revolution perhaps which is what we want but it also encourages the very worst of us right but doesn't the the mainstream press do that as well so you can i mean we are quite regulated in this country so it's not as bad Mm. as some other countries in australia talkback radio uh, was was extreme uh you know there was one breakfast presenter there who really did inside a right you've got shock jocks in america and and it's same same deal absolutely uh and and we've but we everyone has Murdoch yes, <laughs> of, course, of course you know and Murdoch chooses who's going to be the next president or the next prime minister well, and yeah, he's quite allegedly. successful at well that. maybe maybe but but the point in all this is it's suddenly accessible to everybody across borders everybody can take part everybody can listen mm. and every opinion however mad bad whatever it is gets amplified and yeah. it's the algorithm in my view that's the main issue right but but mad or bad opinions if they're isolated are fine it's when they get traction and uh, and you get a big which following. is the way the algorithm works, works. and builds it all up so mm. so this is the issue is it is free speech what regulation should there be about free speech because there's been a very interesting article uh, in the last month uh, in the conversation website i can recommend it by a bunch of academics who've taken this all on board yeah well one of them is professor rita motor from the department of society politics and sustainability at Esade University in Barcelona. She joins us now. So let, let me ask you, if I may, at the beginning. I mean, the, the notion of free speech is obviously something that, that we all pay lip service to, I suppose. But in the context of social media, and specifically Twitter, it is problematic. And I know you feel this. So perhaps just give us an idea of why you think it's problematic. Why free speech is problematic? Yeah. <laughs> well, um, Okay, let me go back one step and just uh, tell you what I think um, is is the case in terms of how 
social media um, affects human rights and freedom of expression in particular. Um, so it's, it's, it's very easy to just fall into this um, tendency of talking about the dark side without <laughs> talking about the really good things that can happen by virtue of people having access to online platforms such as Twitter. Um, it's, it's really important that uh, people can have ways to um, seek information, to impart information, um, and to express their own opinions. And um, I think it's pretty, pretty clear to everyone by now that um, social media platforms have radically expanded the ways in which people can do that. So um, they, in general, facilitate freedom of expression, and that's great. They also um, enable the mobilization of social movements, and we've seen that happening with really important movements such as the Arab Spring. Um, they give um, human rights activists and human rights defenders powerful tools to both document and expose abuses by uh, governmental and non-governmental actors. Um, so these are all really great things, and uh, they are things that should be preserved, and so freedom of expression is and should be a priority for um, social media companies. But um, online platforms are also spaces where human rights impacts are both um, generated and exacerbated. So, you know, the same characteristics of these platforms that end up enabling um, expression and social participation, even in political life, cultural life, um, they also facilitate the spread of hate speech. Um, they allow for people to bully each other, to harass each other. They allow for the spread of fake news. Um, but, but that would be true. That would be true if I can interrupt. If you had a, a town hall meeting, you get people you disagree with. You get people with unacceptable views. They probably shout the loudest. Uh, often people do. Yeah, but it's different, isn't it, online? Because if you're if you're in a in a crowd and you you. Uh, push out views which are generally unfavorable you're going to get shouted down pretty quickly but if, behind uh the, the this the online space you can you can say what you like and find other people who are going to agree with you so that's why it's different to to a sort of like a real life environment look you you wrote recently that anything that weakens filters on on hate speech misinformation and illegal content should not be done unlikely and uh undone lightly and you you were talking there about uh uh, how Elon Musk is, is has now got less people monitoring the content on Twitter because, well, let's face it, there's only a handful of people, by all accounts, working at uh, yes. Twitter these days. <laughs> um, but I suppose his argument would be, and other proponents of, of free speech, they'd say, you know, well, it really depends. When you're talking about filtering content, it really depends on who is applying those filters and what they believe in. And that is the nub of the issue, isn't it? Because... Everyone's got a different opinion, mm -hmm. and uh, for somebody, somebody has to be an arbitrator. And what happens if you don't agree with the arbitrator? That's very true, and I think it's really problematic to um, accept or to argue that um, a, a bunch of unelected people in these tech companies should be the ultimate arbiters of truth. Um, that's that's a really dangerous idea, I think, but. It's also equally dangerous to say that these companies should not attempt to engage in some sort of, of moderation. Um, it's There are ways in which this can be done in a more or less appropriate way. 
Um, and, you know, for example, devolving much of the uh, content moderation to algorithmic based tools is, I think, quite dangerous. Uh, and that's because a lot of the decisions that have to be made, a lot of the trade-offs that have to be considered rely to a large extent on context and on um, cultural nuance that algorithms simply cannot uh, engage with. Uh, it's impossible for an algorithm to tell if something is actually hateful, for example, or toxic or, or not. I mean, there's a lot of research, for example, in, in queer linguistics that shows that um, speech that would be considered impolite or rude or toxic in some contexts actually helps LGBTQ plus people to cope with hostility. And, and there's been research on some of the online tools that have been used and are being used to detect toxic speech, like perspective. Um, and, and researchers have found that these tools on average, for example, classify speech from drag queens as being as toxic as that of white nationalists. So Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it's a word like queer, for example, as we know, was was a term of abuse and can exactly. still be. But but in certain contexts, isn't let me let me put you a suggestion, though, that it, the problem with free speech on these sort of platforms is not really so much a matter of moderation. The problem is the algorithm within these platforms that boosts boosts things disproportionately, that puts uh, extreme views up high, that pushes conflict. And if, it, if, if you could in some way get rid of that, if it was simply an open market, if you like, an opinion, the good might drive out the bad anyway. It, that's that's a really good point because um, the the way that online platforms govern how we communicate online is not just based on what's allowed to remain online and what's taken down, right? It's also very much connected to how visible things are. And um, we all know that these algorithms are, um, <laughs> you know, they're programmed with a certain goal in mind. And that goal is to keep people engaged, to keep people online, to keep them scrolling, to um, keep To see more ads, ultimately. Of course, I'm you sorry. know. To see more ads, ultimately, isn't it? Keep you on longer so they can serve more ads at you. That's the, that, that yes. is the business model. Exactly. And, yeah. and, and that's why that's why my my co-authors and I have um, emphasized this human rights based approach so much, because when you do that, you're forced to think about rights holders first. So the risks to rights holders rather than risks to the company. And that completely changes the dynamics of um, how you think about these questions. So tell me more about that. I'm not quite sure I get so the rights holders. So who are rights holders? I mean, we are all rights holders, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, um, as, as you know, human rights are rights that people have just because they're human, right? So there are these entitlements that we have as members of, of humankind. And um, traditionally, we used to think about human rights in terms of responsibilities of states, um, because those were the actors that were powerful enough to affect the extent to which we could realize our human rights or not. Um, that started to change when some companies uh, began to outsource production to other countries. There were scandals like um, Nike's association with sweatshops in the 90s, um, you know, the killings in, in Nigeria associated with oil projects. Um, and, and these questions became more and more prominent with, with the pervasiveness of, of multi-jurisdictional supply chains that characterize um, globalization. 
And, and so these questions began to, to become really relevant, not just in, in academia, but obviously uh, from the point of view of regulation. And right now we don't really, we don't have an international legally binding treaty that establishes business human rights responsibilities, but we do have a pretty broad consensus as to the fact that businesses have human rights obligations. And we have a number of instruments um, like the United Nations Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights that um, are very widely endorsed and that um, are, coincide with very strong moral arguments. And what, uh, what you're saying is these, the, this set of, if you like, uh, accepted axioms almost of human rights should be the mechanism that you then put into the algorithm. Is that, is, is, am I getting that right? Not to the algorithm necessarily. I mean, when people think about, first of all, when to use algorithms and for what and how, yes, they should have human rights in mind. Um, because, for example, when you prioritize certain types of content over others uh, in these online arenas that are becoming so essential to, the, um, to, to people's exercise of their rights, then you are making choices as an unelected uh, actor about the extent to which people can realize their rights or the extent to which you're allowing people's rights to be affected. And um, governments are trying to deal with this and they are trying to regulate, but there are, there are so many details that go into content moderation policies that it would be impossible to legislate the problem away, you know, there will always be room for judgment and online platforms will have to make decisions um, that that can affect our lives very, very profoundly. But the, but the, and that is hard, though, isn't it? Because uh, because there's millions of us all doing different things online, all with different interests. So it would be f perfectly normal if Roger, for example, had an interest in cheese, which I do, I, and it looks like he does. <laughs> Uh, then if he goes online and he is it, all of a sudden in this community of cheese lovers, he would be he would be blissfully happy. But similarly, if somebody was to use the same algorithm in a different way, somebody went online and this is a case that's very much in the news in the UK at the moment. Somebody goes online to look at how to um, perform self-harm. And then all of a sudden they are presented with other examples of self-harm. They may have been only having a passing uh, consideration of self-harm, but then are pushed to the edge by seeing more and more of this content. That is a very different uh, kettle of fish to Roger's uh, but, but, collection. But to uh, use your point about human rights, it's in a way, many, there's been a big argument about things that are not illegal, but potentially harmful, whether they can, they are still should be accessible to adults. Uh, if you say that they can't be, then you are restricting their human rights as well, aren't you? <laughs> yes, I guess um, that's a fair comment. But um, the, the biggest point that I'm trying to make is that human rights can clash and they do clash. And there has to be a decision about how to manage that clash. So the extent to which you restrict one to allow the other one to 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 persist or to be realized and um, I guess the, 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 you made a really important distinction there between what's strictly illegal and what's just questionable from uh, the point of view of potential harm. And uh, I would say that for the things that are clearly illegal, online platforms already have pretty sophisticated tools to deal with them. Um, and 
the rest will have to be a combination of algorithm algorithmic solutions and human moderators. We should not forget that human moderators are uh, exposed to really horrible content mm. and that that takes a huge toll on their psychological emotional well-being. So even the way that online platforms deal with their human moderators should be human rights informed. So they should think about strategies that they can use to protect these individuals and to guarantee that they can still remain sane regardless. Yeah, but, but, but they, they are censors in the same way. We used to say that film censors and people who, you know, who, who were set up to give certificates to films and publications, they, they must be affected they, by what they yeah, see as well. they're not seeing the same sort of well, stuff they see online. But I suppose the point is, as people made with, 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 with censorship generally, is, isn't there a point where adults who are making free choices about what they see and if what they're seeing is not illegal should be able to see that and also express opinions about it who are we to say they can't sure but can you really say that for example marginalized groups are choosing to receive threats of violence on a platform just because they are using that platform for their own freedom of expression but the threat of violence would be illegal. I mean, that would be obvious, wouldn't it? If I if I threaten to kill someone, yes, that's that's illegal. But if I express an opinion that is detrimental to them, that's not the same thing necessarily. Well, a threat of an explicit threat of violence, yes. But um, there are so many so many ways that people threaten each other without really threatening, you know, actual physical harm. Um, when, when hate speech is just allowed to persist, the very first consequence of that in most cases is that the targets of that hate speech are silenced themselves. They become scared of speaking. So even just saying that it is desirable that freedom of expression um, be completely unbridled is contradictory in terms because if you allow one group to have completely unlimited and unrestricted freedom of expression, you are necessarily accepting that other groups, other individuals will be limited in their freedom of expression. And there are other rights, of course, other human rights, important human rights that can be seriously compromised if you allow people to say whatever they want whenever they want to whomever they want so uh, if you think simply of i don't know the right to privacy and family life the the right not to be subjected to attacks to one's honor and reputation and you know in extreme cases the the right to life although of course that enters into the illegal type of content that you were just mentioning but um platforms have to strike a balance and they have to do it in a thoughtful transparent inclusive way they cannot allow freedom of expression to override other human rights but uh, does it de does it depend on who you're saying it to so if i i for example could have a bit of a rant against cheese eaters just trying to lighten, yeah, yeah, lighten the flavor does, a little yeah. bit uh, <laughs> I, if i was to if i was to do that and roger and i wasn't directing it at roger and so roger wasn't aware that i was having a dig at cheese eaters roger could carry on happily cheese eating and the rest of us 
could be there sort of like sharing our views on, on cheese eaters. I, I is, that, it, is, that, is that It's harmful? the echo chamber argument that, it, that actually if people within a certain echo chamber hear views that they like, people who might feel threatened by those views don't have to watch, don't have to listen. Yeah, if they, so long as that echo chamber is contained and they're not, mm. it, then nobody else is exposed to it. So, if, And even if they are exposed to it, is, is it directed personally at, at you, so so for example, Roger may be aware that there are a community of people mm. who don't like cheese eaters, but he just go well. That's their problem. Do I have so the like, right not to be offended? I suppose, if it's not directed specifically at you, is mm. that is that is that an issue? I guess one of the ways you can think about it is how central to a person's dignity that particular characteristic or trait or uh, preference is. So, you know, if you're attacking my sexual identity or my religious um, beliefs, that's very different from attacking my preference for one cheese over another or one band over another. Mm. Um, There are certain characteristics and people refer to them as protected characteristics for a reason that are so uh, deeply important to one's identity, to one's dignity, to one's flourishing, that uh, they obviously should be given more weight than to other questions that are not as fundamental. But but it's it's who decides that? Because I mean, I'm thinking of an obvious example uh, in religious terms. There are people who, if uh, I went online and said God does not exist, or I said something uh, unobliging about the Prophet Muhammad, for example, they would find that deeply offensive at the level you're talking about. And yet, it's an expression of a free religious opinion as well. So. It's very hard to make those distinctions. It's It's all boundaries, isn't it? And if it's not done by computer... It's done by a person, and then it gets down to being the the, the opinion of that person, and then and that therefore, you know, which I think was part of Elon Musk's concern. I'm not standing up for him by any stretch of the imagination, of course, but I mean, he certainly felt as though the content moderators at Twitter went too far in the in their opinions, and they were, for example, siding uh, on one particular partisan approach to politics. Well, I'm I'm not saying that this is an easy task. And, um, you know, again, I will go back to the point about the fact that it it is really dangerous to uh, rely on on social media platforms alone to be arbitrators of truth. And there has to be public debate about these things. And there has to be a collaborative effort. And look, in a perfect world, I would like to see states, international organizations, these big uh, tech companies and civil society organizations all collaborating together to come up with solutions to these problems. In the real world, this is probably not going to happen very easily. But um, what I am trying to say is that human rights and um, especially international human rights law and all of the philosophical work done around it provides us with a set of tools that we can use to try to make sense of these difficult questions in a more informed way. And yes, it will come down to the judgments of uh, individuals, but if they do so by reference to these standards that are out there and that are the product of a very, very long time of deliberation and thought and uh, careful, um, careful negotiation, 
then at least we have a framework to work with and it's not going to be as arbitrary as just saying okay let's let the loudest people in the room silence everyone else because sure sure but you've got i mean you, you talk about that the, the, there is an anomaly that the big companies like twitter or, or facebook or whatever seem to have the ability to make these decisions for us and maybe state actors should be involved but then if you bring state actors in well for example there's a, a kind of revolution going on in iran at the moment china is another one where the states they would probably consider wish to consider things to be unacceptable on social media um, that we wouldn't share the view of most of us. Um, the, the UN Human Rights Council is, is very divided on lots of these issues. So, so whose job is it? Yeah, exactly. Who's going to accept this? So, and and it sounds like you were saying that you know because this is a human rights issue, these companies have to accept that they are responsible for those violations of human rights that that happen on their platform, and we have the law behind that, don't we? So they. Surely it is up to them, however it's managed, and that's the issue, but however it's managed, they've got to take responsibility for those violations of human rights that happen on their platform. They can't shirk away from it and say, it wasn't us, it was people who did that. It's their platform. They should hold. Well, they are publishers, right? They are publishers. Exactly. That was the point I was going to make. It's the same as a newspaper publisher, perhaps, and a journalist to saying something is the same as somebody on their platform saying something, surely. Well, it, it really depends on which country you're talking about. And this is another huge problem because um, these online platforms operate across the entire world and different countries do have different ways to regulate their um, operations. So, for example, in the United States, uh, they have much less responsibility than they do in the European Union. And uh, it's, it's, it's difficult to deal with questions like the ones you just raised about um, authoritarian governments, for example, using uh, social media content moderation to essentially silence opposition. Uh, but again, if you ask, if, if you, if, if online platforms take a human rights approach to these issues, they will not respond to government pressures in, uh, in, 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 a, in a way that simply ignores the effects that those requests have on people's rights. So um, I think the, the, the crucial point here is that regardless of specific domestic um, political and legislative frameworks, and regardless of the more democratic or authoritarian nature of the government of a country in question, if online platforms focus on human rights of the people who use those platforms and of the people who are affected by what happens on those flat platforms, then at least they have a pretty straightforward notion of what, how far they should go in allowing certain types of content to remain and allowing certain types of content to go. But I should also add that there's a difference between just removing online content altogether, deleting it entirely, or just hiding it from view. And I think that's an important um, distinction, especially in the context of, of abusive states. So um, you know that human rights defenders and human rights activists have been using social media a lot to, um, for example, share videos of human rights abuses. And um, a lot of the times these videos have very disturbing footage. And um, it is probably right that the, the general public is not exposed to the atrocities that are 
help that are contained in these videos. But at the same but, time, but, but that's worrying in itself. If you're saying, yes, some people can see this, but other people can't. You're, you're making a distinction between people that, that many people would think is actually quite dangerous. I'm um, not trying to make a distinction between different types of people being allowed to see it or not. Uh, what I had in mind is the fact that a lot of these videos are necessary as evidence in legal proceedings that are started by these activists or with the collaboration of these activists. And if this content is just removed from, from online platforms, then they cannot use it as evidence. In many cases, they just do not have the technical uh, capabilities or the resources to store these videos safely in different servers in a way that preserves, um, you know, all of the all of the metadata that is necessary to prove that the videos are um, authentic and that they happened in a particular place at a particular time. Um, so, so there's this really important archival function as well that online platforms um, are currently serving and that might have been completely unintended from them, but um, it is an important one nonetheless. And when content moderation is done in a way that just deletes those things and takes them from the hands of the people who are trying to correct injustices and to obtain remedy for victims, then that's really problematic too. Yeah. I mean, that, I think that's a really good point because a, a, a question I was going to ask or a point I was going to make was ultimately, doesn't the law step in? So we've got the example but of- whose law? Well, okay. It depends on what country you're in. And the, 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 so the international aspects are obviously a concern, but the, you know, in the United States, Alex, Alex Jones, the InfoWars guy who, the, you know, the nutter who basically said the Sandy Hook massacre was all fake and that the parents of those who were killed- the children who were killed, all the parents were actors. I mean, this guy's a nut job. He's now a very poor nut job because he's been slammed with a $50 million defamation suite and he's just lost an appeal to have that amount reduced. So I think it's actually a couple of billion that he's down for now. But now, is it yeah, ultimately? Yeah. All right, okay. Well, the guy's yeah, d- he, destitute he, as a result of all of this. So the law took care of him ultimately. But he was out there already and people will still say, well, the law took care of him because the mainstream media and the uh, uh, and the power decided to, to stamp on him. People will read it in those terms. But, but you can if you are you know in whatever environment if you are defamed if you're defamed online or you're defamed in writing in a newspaper you you've got the you've got the law that you can turn to so isn't that the and it, but on that point if something appears if something appears in a the newspaper they can't take it down again that's there as a piece of history so i think your point Rita, if something appears online it should it should still be available even if it's taken down because you might want to sue someone for it Exactly. And remember that different types of actors have different types of means to uh, request that investigations be performed in a certain way. So if a state actor, for example, asks Twitter or Facebook to retrieve something that has been deleted, that's completely different from a small NGO, for example, asking Twitter to uh, retrieve deleted footage. So um, there are important uh, differences in power and resources that uh, should be taken into account Again, as well, when when platforms design their policies for content moderation, it's a really complex, really, really complex thing. And um, 
I am I am definitely not. I, I cannot repeat this enough saying that it's super easy. And so it's ridiculous that people are having this but, type of discussion in the first place. It's not. It's super difficult. Um, but decisions have to be made. I mean, just let, let this. I mean, we, we talked about Twitter and your article, of course, is reflects on, on Twitter. And the most famous, most controversial, I, I, I suppose, thing was removing Donald Trump, suspending Donald Trump, and now his return, theoretically, though in fact he hasn't returned, to Twitter. Do you think there is a case for someone like him to be actually removed from a platform like that when he clearly has mass support, his views, we may not like them, but they do seem to chime with a lot of people, isn't it an obvious case of censorship? I think it depends on what that person is saying and um, how well or not they respond to the platform's um, complaints that this person is not complying with the terms of service. Um, so if you have a person who is constantly inciting violence or um, attempting to, um, to, to make marginalized groups um, targets for a specific audience and does not correct their behavior when the platform says you cannot do this on this platform, then I think there is a very strong case for keeping that person out of the platform. And, you know, it's... But it's even a judgment call again. It's a judge. So, so he would be there going, are you... Sorry, Rita, you are just so woke. Uh, and you I've know, heard that before. <laughs> oh, surprise! <laughs> but, but I mean, that's what yeah. he would say, and and you know, it, that's his view. So look, and and, and you know, and, and so it's just a different. You know, he would argue he's just got a different opinion to you. And sometimes it's harmless, and sometimes it's not. I mean, when he incites violence, that obviously is a is a real problem. I had a um, a conspiracy theorist responding to one of my tweets uh, last week and it was a, it was a, the most harmless tweet it was about e- economics so not many people will have been reading it and uh, it was about covid and he said oh you do realize that you know covid uh, was created uh, by bill gates uh, so he could spread the uh, spread the vaccine to correct it so he could depopulate the planet to replace us all with hmm. machines yeah uh, so something Fair like, enough. Yeah. It's an interesting viewpoint. I took it on board. I decided <laughs> to dismiss it, as did almost everybody else. I mean, the guy was just showing what an idiot he was. I mean, that's pretty harmless, except to himself. When people are sharing views like that, I mean, they're crazy views. That, but, but they, they should still be heard? I think they should, shouldn't they? Well, it's. I think it's pretty widely accepted that um, you should not limit freedom of expression just because what someone is saying is false. Um, And this is something that even the UN Special Rapporteur has said multiple times. Um, You you should not prevent people from um, expressing their views just because you know they're not true. Um, That would be an unacceptable limitation of freedom of expression. So So it's just when you are out to cause harm. That's the issue, isn't it? If you're looking for one descriptor, it's out to deliberately cause harm. That's the main one, I would say, yes. Mm. Um, but, but you can't know someone's, you can say, well, they know what people say. You can't know their motivation necessarily. In some cases, it is pretty clear. I mean, um, mm. just following the publication of this conversation article, um, my co-authors and I received hate mail. 
And, yeah. um, That's what, we look forward to getting that after this podcast. <laughs> we we will unquestionably get the same, I'm sure, if anyone's listening. So what about, so, so is an, anonymity part of the problem here? And, and is the, I know this is a big step, yeah. but should we say that if you are going to go onto any platform, you should have to prove your identity. You should have to have your, yeah, you should have to show your driver's license or photo ID or something. So it's very clear you are who you say you are. Oh, I mean, that would get over a lot of these problems, wouldn't it? That, that sounds like a great idea, but you know what? In practice, it's not actually super problematic too. So Facebook tried that um, in the past and it raised all sorts of problems, for example, for human rights defenders, because um, <laughs> you know anonymity is super important for certain people who are trying to do very important, very good work, but who face almost certain retaliation from very powerful actors if their identity is disclosed. Right, but they don't. But you could. But you could remain. Okay. So another way is that you have to verify who you are to get on, but you don't have to demonstrate who you are. But then, to, then, to then the it comes back public. to the platform to, to you know the same problem of of them actually having people on you and checking what you're saying and all the rest of it, which we've said is inefficient in the right, extreme. They would know who you are even if nobody well, they else would. would. But yeah. Yeah. Mm. I mean, overall, I suppose, uh, Professor, in all this, that the, the main drift seems to be that we need the social media platforms to do better and to respond with humans monitoring this stuff, because we know that algorithms don't work necessarily. It's a huge ask. Do you think there's any chance that the that these social media platforms will come up to the mark on this, that they will take it seriously? There's been a lot of campaigning. I think they have to. <laughs> I don't think they have much choice, really. Um, and, you know, you see, so I've been talking about risks to rights holders this entire time. But of course, getting rid of content moderation also poses business risks. I mean, we've already seen advertisers moving away from, from Twitter. Um, you know, the controversy now with Apple, um, thinking about whether Twitter will conform to uh, with app stores, the app stores terms of service and um, the fight that's going on on Twitter right now between Elon Musk or, well, mostly Elon Musk just complaining mm. about Apple. Like these are signs that um, the, the, the tech business community acknowledges that this is a responsibility and that this is something that they have to take seriously. And other businesses that engage with tech companies have the same view. So I think that even if people in these companies cannot accept this moral argument that I'm trying to make, they will probably be persuaded by the business argument that this is a very risky thing to do. Capitalism wow. winning out over morality in the way, but possibly in the right way. Which so we, we, might, yeah, we might be watching Elon Musk going through a very sharp learning curve at the moment. <laughs> so one final question. Then. Do you think, I mean, social media, do you think it is entrenching the, the worst of society? Is it making us more racist, less tolerant, more or like more divided, less able to follow a, a nuanced debate, which is obviously what we do on this podcast. But, uh, <laughs> but, we we, yeah, but you know, where it's a, a small drop in the ocean, of a, of a world yeah. where everything is black and white. Is, is social media making that worse? That's a huge question. And um, I don't... I always ask a big question right at the very end when you've got no time <laughs> to answer it. I'm famous for it. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you for picking such a big one. Well, um, I think that uh, there is enough evidence out there in research by other people um, that we tend to adopt behaviours and perspectives online that we wouldn't necessarily mm. have the courage to adopt in the offline world. 
Um, and I think that that must have consequences uh, in terms of how we engage with each other, how we um, limit the different perspectives that we're exposed to and um, the way that algorithms work, the way that they select what we see also limit the variety of perspectives that we end up engaging with. And I think that impoverishes our human experience and can have significant implications for um, how we as communities um, deal with complicated and difficult questions because it feels that um, in some cases, and this is just my personal opinion, I'm not basing it on any any sort of um, research, but it feels that when it comes to some really delicate questions that involve difficult trade-offs, um, it is harder for people to communicate across camps without just being completely antagonized and um, without resisting any sort of contradictory information. And it, it, I, I think that's really dangerous. And I think one of it's the poisoning, we poisoning as, the well of debate, I think, is a sort of general yeah, feeling. Yeah. Big, part the, yeah. big part of the problem is that it's stuff in writing. It's easy to take offense in writing when, when you're actually holding yeah. a discussion. You can take the wrong side of an argument and then it can just mushroom. Which out is of why control. podcasts work a lot. We were a podcast of the future. Anyway. Absolutely. <laughs> Good story, Rita. Thanks for, thanks Thank for coming on. Thank you so on. much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Well, do you know what? After all of that, something yes. which is another problem which has been with us for a long time that nobody yes. seems the answer to, to have the answer to, but it seems somewhat easier, is productivity. Why are we all so lazy producing nothing and all the rest of the world why is doing better? Does the, why do the French manage mm. to work, uh, if they wanted to, mm. four days a week and achieve what uh, Brit achieves in five exactly. days? Now, it used to be measured in widgets. How many widgets can you produce mm. uh, in a given day? Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, most of our industry has rather gone, so you can't measure widgets anymore. So how do we know how productive we are if well, you're a service industry yeah. how on earth do you measure it yeah absolutely so I mean there's two questions which we'll look at next week fundamentally yes how do you measure productivity and given that the way we do measure it currently why is Britain so bad at it yeah. and is, is it just because it's measured in the wrong way yeah. uh, and you know it is because a lot of it is related to manufacturing yeah. and we are, are much more services or is it that we have a less educated workforce mm. uh, is that the problem that yeah. they, they're not trained in the right way so therefore they don't do the right things or, or is it investment or are we just lazy uh, well, <laughs> well, we won't because we'll be talking about this next week. <laughs> we'll look at all of that next week on the Y Curve. See you then. Bye. The Y Curve.